Welcome to the Indie Matters Podcast, where we talk about the issues that matter most to Nevada. I'm John Ralston, the editor of the Nevada Independent. Each week, we'll discuss matters of importance that we covered and look ahead to what's coming in the Nevada Independent. We're a nonprofit news site that can be found at the NevadaIndependent.com. We had been coming to you from Carson City, but now we're back in Las Vegas after the legislative session coming to you from the beautiful studios of KUNV, and we can't thank them enough for hosting us on this podcast. Today, I'm joined by two of our finer reporters, Megan Messerly and Jackie Valley, are here with me. Hi, you guys. Hey, John. Hey, John. Welcome. So, uh, it was supposed to slow down after the legislature for all of us. No such luck, uh, Jackie and Megan. There were a lot of big stories. We are recording this on a Friday. Let's talk about uh, what happened uh, this morning with the uh, Brian Sandoval, the governor, and Dean Heller, the senator, uh, who was known as the swing vote on the new health care bill in the Senate. Uh, what happened? Right. So like you mentioned, you know, there was no break after the <laughs> legislative session. Um, we had this week the Senate health care bill, which which senators have been working on in secret. No one knew what was going to be in it. Um, that came out this week on Wednesday. Um, initially, Republican Senator Dean Heller's reaction was kind of, well, I need to read through and, and talk with the governor about it. He's been saying that kind of all along, that his decision is going to be dependent on what Republican Governor Brian Sandoval thinks. And that's really important because Sandoval was the one who expanded Medicaid in Nevada under the Affordable Care Act. Um, the House bill and the Senate bill both would change that, both would sort of get rid of that um, that Medicaid expansion in different ways. Um, but we, we knew that what Sandoval thought was going to be very important to Heller because that Medicaid expansion is very important to him. Um, so Senator Heller's initial reaction was kind of, you know, we'll wait and see, we'll wait and see. And then on Thursday, there was this press conference, uh, Republican Governor Brian Sandoval, Senator Heller taking the stage together, and Senator Heller actually announced that he would be voting no on the bill if it remains in its current form. And in the run-up to this, we already knew, uh, as you mentioned, that Sandoval had expanded Medicaid, and he said specifically, I think uh, maybe to, to one of uh, uh, our reporters, maybe you, in Carson City, that he believed in, 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 in the expansion of Medicaid. So we knew where he was, and so Heller kept saying that he was going to follow the governor's lead, show the bill to the governor. So uh, I don't think this was that surprising that he was going no, but this was very dramatically done, right? It was very dramatically done. They called a press conference, you know, all the TV cameras and us reporters showed up and, you know, instead of just sending out, you know, a press release or something saying, you know, I, I'm not comfortable with this bill as it is right now, you know, to make a big show of it and make a big stand. And he was pretty critical of the bill, you know, in its, in its current form and, you know, said he would, you know, be open to seeing changes and what have you. Um, but for a Republican senator to, senator to come out and criticize the bill that, you know, is this, you know, product of other Republican senators, it's sort of an uncomfortable position um, for him to be in, but sort of also a, a bold stand for a Republican to take that position against, you know, legislation his own party is crafted. And, and, and that a lot of major donors to his party, including probably some in this state, uh, are, are uh, very much supportive. We have a, a deep dive into what this bill does. We, we posted that on Thursday, the day before this press conference, and, and the impact on the Vadens that the entire staff uh, worked on. There was a lot of stuff that was actually going on in the run-up to this. Let me just bring in real quickly, Jackie, and you reported on this. Uh, this was really interesting, is that Pat Skorkowski, uh, you, you cover education uh, a, a lot. Pat Skorkowski, the superintendent of Clark County School District, actually got involved in this Medicaid issue. What did he do? Yeah, well, last night at the Board of Trustees meeting, at the very end, he made a plea, essentially, to everyone in the crowd, letting them know he had 
signed a letter and delivered it to the offices of Senators Catherine Cortez Masto and Dean Heller, uh, urging them not to go forward with the Medicaid repeal portion of it. Uh, basically, because of the funding that's tied to it, they rely on $7 million worth of funding for the low-income families and uh, specifically children with disabilities. So all the kids that are on IEPs, the Individualized Education Plans, some of that money feeds in and helps the district offer those services. So if they lose that $7 million, they'll be further dipping into their general fund to replace those dollars. And and the trustees did not say anything about about this issue, right? This was all Skorkowski? This was all Skorkowski. It was uh, during the uh, part of the meeting where the trustees and the superintendent are open to talk about anything, and this is what he brought up. I thought that was really, really surprising. You know, it's interesting, uh, Megan, uh, uh, in terms of you, you said that it could be seen as bold, what, what the hell is doing. He's going against his own party to some extent. Uh, he could be the person who scuttles this bill or at least makes them change it, which brings up a couple of things that have happened since uh, we, we first posted our story saying Heller was voting no, and we updated our story. There's a Maggie Haberman in the New York Times reported that this huge super PAC that, that has a lot of money is preparing a seven-figure buy now against Heller, right? Right. Yeah, which is obviously, you know, very important considering that Heller is up for re-election in 2018. You know, that's going to be a tough election fight for him. He's considered the most vulnerable Republican senator. Um, it's the best pickup opportunity for Democrats. So to have, you know, Republicans sort of cannibalizing each other so early is, you know, going to be tricky for him going into the election. You know, it's interesting because I was wondering, in fact, I was talking to a, a political consultant on the way to this podcast because obviously I'm talking to a political consultant because I have no life. And, and uh, this person I was saying, oh, this is going to be, could be a challenge from the right. And I said, well, who's going to challenge uh, Dean Heller from the right? And the name that comes to mind for everybody is Danny Tarkanian, right? Now, Danny Tarkanian actually told me yesterday he hadn't been thinking about the Senate, but I wonder now if he does. And I wonder, uh, how how strong do you think Heller was in terms of his opposition to this bill, in terms of giving himself wiggle room at some point, if it's amended in some way to vote for it? Because I saw Josh Marshall, who's the head of a website called Talking Points Memo, a very liberal site, saying, don't believe Heller. He's just putting out a negotiating ploy. He boxed himself pretty well on this, didn't he, Megan? Yeah, he really did. And he, w he was really strong on it. And I, I think, you know, going into this, we knew that Heller was going to be in a tough place, right? He could either, you know, su support the bill, you know, whatever in its current form. And, um, you know, that might appeal to the base, you know, getting rid of the Affordable Care Act would be very popular. But at the same time, you know, it's not very popular right now. The bill's not very popular among the American public. You know, what does that mean for moderates and those people he might need to bring along? You know, he might get the base, but then, you know, does he does he lose this crowd in the middle? Um, but yeah, like you mentioned, you know, he was pretty firm about his stance. I mean, he still did give him some himself some room saying, you know, I'm uncomfortable with it in its current form. I would not vote for it in its current form. You know, so it's possible that he could, there is some wiggle room. But I think the biggest problem is that um, this issue of Medicaid funding, you know, there's a certain number of states where Republicans Republican governors decided to expand Medicaid. Um, and that's just going to be really hard if that, you know, if Medi if that Medicaid expansion is not a part of the bill, you know, the, the governor's not indicated he's not going to be comfortable with it. You know, if he's not comfortable with it, it's going to be really hard for Senator Heller to go back and say, well, you know, it, it still gets rid of Medicaid expansion, but, you know, that's okay now. You and, know? and it's hard to imagine that any form of this bill is not going to have some kind of Medicaid phase out. Sure. And, and I know let's let's conclude talking about this with this with yeah. this issue is did we get a firm answer from Heller? I mean, he has said that he was asked about a two year and a seven year. So 
he chose seven years. Right. And if he'd asked, been asked about a 15 years, mm -hmm. at the end point, he would have said 15 years. Yeah. Do we know, is, is, does he support some kind of Medicaid phase out, no matter what the number of years are? So he left the option open on that for some sort of Medicaid phase out, but he qualified it by saying, you know, if there was some sort of phase out, there would need to be an expansion of what we call legacy Medicaid. So the existing Medicaid program. The question is, we don't really know what that looks like. You know, how, how would legacy Medicaid be expanded? Who would it apply to? And I was asking the governor's chief of staff, Mike Wilden, after um, after the, the press conference was over about this, you know, do we know what that would look like? And he, he was kind of just saying there's so many unanswered questions about, you know, what an expansion of, if you want to call it legacy Medicaid, what that would look like, um, you know, how you would make that work in such a form that it wouldn't impact these Nevadans that now have coverage under Medicaid expansion. And it's interesting because Mike Wilden used to be the head of uh, HHS. Right. He knows this issue inside yep. and out. I think he helped persuade the governor in the first place to expand it. I think neither of them want any kind of plan where people will be kicked off the, their current right. health care. That's correct? the ultimate goal is just to make sure that everyone who is now covered, you know, still is able to access coverage. And the one thing that Senator Heller mentioned too, um, and, and the governor, this is a point they were making, is that, you know, Medicaid expansion, you have now these people who are making, you know, $16,000 a year qualifying for Medicaid. If you get rid of this Medicaid expansion, how are they going to be able to go out and afford this health care? You know, this isn't someone who really has the money to be out and going and buying insurance on the uh, exchange. Um, so even though that may st still be an option open to them, you know, is it feasibly an option for them given their financial situation? All right. The Senate race is, uh, is, is going to be one of the marquee races uh, in 2018. The other one is the governor's race. And both both races had these huge developments. And Jackie, uh, we broke the story that Steve Sisolak, uh, the chairman of the Clark County Commission, long anticipated a candidate for governor, announced on, uh, as a Democratic candidate for governor. And you you sat down with him for a fairly in-depth interview. You got some good stuff uh, out of him, including apparently he loves the current governor, who is a Republican. Is that right? It appears so. <laughs> yeah, I, I asked him about that because he he's always seemed to strike a fine line with some of his stances on things. And and so I just asked him whether he sp had spoken to the governor in the morning, and he followed up and just kept talking and made it very clear that he thinks the governor's done an incredible job and he wants to continue with a lot of the same policies and he uh, wants to follow a similar common sense approach, as he called it, to governing. But he doesn't have Governor Sandoval's endorsement to our knowledge. To our knowledge, no. <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, t talk about uh, how comfortable he seemed in, in, in terms of announcing this candidacy and talking about issues, because you asked him about a lot of different issues, including some issues uh, that confronted the legislature and that the governor uh, had a hand in vetoing, right? Yeah, it was interesting because I had interviewed Sisolak quite a few times in the past, and several of those times I had asked him directly, are you running for governor? And he always played it very coy and said, I'm focusing on my job as chairman of county commission. And so we both knew that this conversation was coming at some point. Um, so interestingly, yesterday, when I was going through those list of legislative topics, ESAs, energy policy, uh, yucca, et cetera, he seemed to take a more measured approach on a few of the things. Um, normally, he just comes across so candid and will just say whatever. Um, but he seemed a little bit more restrained than the normal Steve Sisolak we all know. So they put a, a governor on him, <laughs> terrible pun, but uh, uh, in, in terms of he was a little bit more scripted, would you say? A little more scripted. Because he is, he does talk very well off the cuff. He's very, very, he seems very comfortable with himself for a politician, right? Yeah. So I think there, there were certain issues where he had a very clear, firm stance. Yucca, no way. Um, ESAs, 
only if it's not diverting from public education dollars. Um, but when I asked him about energy, for instance, and the renewable energy portfolio standards, that was where it was. I got a little bit more measured response. You know, I think we need to do more. Um, but I couldn't really get him to articulate what that more meant. Um, to a certain extent, the same thing with minimum wage. He uh, said, you know, I think we need to do more. Uh, he did say he wasn't. He didn't think it was realistic to do it in one fell swoop, a little bit more gradual. But yeah, like I said, it was a little bit more of a tempered conversation on a few of the issues. And and one of the reasons that Democrats like Steve Sisolak in this race, including a guy maybe like Harry Reid, who I understand is still in the shadows somewhere, is that he has a little bit of money on hand, does he not, Jackie? How much does he have? Yeah, close to $4 million. And he talked about that, you know, that he'd built up a lot, but now he'd kind of taken a break fundraising this year, and now he really has to ramp it up again. I don't know who's left that he hasn't gotten money from that he's going to be able to find. And, of course, Megan, you know, this this the whole governor's race was kind of being talked about up up in Carson City and was, uh, as, as we remember, uh, uh, talked about a lot when uh, Adam Laxalt came, the, the attorney general who was expected uh, to run uh, for, for on the Republican side. He's raised some money, too. But there's also maybe a couple other two or three Democrats thinking about it, right, Megan? Yeah, so I know one, I think maybe it was Jackie or Michelle talked to um, Commissioner Christian Kiliani, um, who's, you know, not entirely ruled it out. I remember I talked to her back earlier this year and because I, I noticed she was sort of giving all of her money away. And I, I remember asking her, you know, do you have any plans to run in 2018? And she was very much, you know, no, no, not 2018. You know, I'm just going to sit things out and see how it goes and figure out things later. And now, you know, she's, she's changed her tune a little bit, um, which I think is pretty interesting. You know, it's just been a couple of months and a, we saw a shift there. Yeah, and it's interesting because, of course, she's a colleague of Steve Sisolak's in the same party, and there was some talk, and, and, and you got into this, I think, a little bit in the story and what you just said, Jackie. He is not a traditional Democrat in the sense that uh, he does seem to be much more pragmatic, which a lot of progressives don't like. Uh, he's he's clashed with some public employee unions. I remember when he went after the firefighters on, on sick leave and, and his praise of Governor Sandoval. So he doesn't come across as the traditional Democrat, right? No, and he acknowledges that. He describes himself as a more socially liberal, but fiscally conservative. Um, and beyond that, you know, very, very much an advocate of open and transparent government. And and uh, I, I guess uh, it's going to be interesting to watch. We don't know. We think at Laxalt is going to announce uh, very, very soon. Uh, uh, and, and just one quick thing on this, Megan, let's tell people. Jackie mentioned the $4 million. It's almost uh, impossible sometimes because these uh, campaign finance reports are opaque. That was changed uh, in the legislature, we're going to get more information now, right? We are, yeah, and we're gonna we're gonna write about that. Um, yeah, there there are a lot of things that we don't know. Um, like cash on hand reporting is really difficult to know right now. You kind of have to go back and see. Well, they brought in this much money, they spent this much money on this report, and then they brought in this much on this one, and you kind of have to tally it all yourself. Um, so unlike federal campaign reports, where that's just a number that's included, and you're able to say so and so as you know five million dollars on hand, whatever it is. Um, now we'll be able to say that, which is a huge deal to be able to know. You know how much someone has been spending you know, what they have left to work with, especially as the campaign progresses, you know, step by step. You know, it's really interesting is that we're saying, you know, it's a big deal and we'll be able to do this. Like, it's, it's amazing that we haven't been able to do right. this <laughs> up until now. Finally, on Sisolak's candidacy, Jackie, and you've covered this issue a lot. He took a very high, high profile on the stadium uh, issue. You've covered the stadium authority. You've interviewed him a lot there. He's a huge advocate from, from the word go for, 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 for doing this. And he still likes to talk about it, doesn't he? Well, I asked him about it, and he laughed and said he knew I was going to ask. <laughs> yeah. uh, and he, he doesn't 
try to make too many excuses for it. He says, I will talk to anyone who wants to know about this. Um, I'm a numbers guy. I ran all the numbers, went through all the spreadsheets. And, you know, based on those findings, I think we are going to see somewhat of a boon to the local economy. And we're going to get more heads in beds, as they like to say. And so he's still optimistic about it. He said he's not going to sit and worry about whether, you know, he loses voters because he's willing and open to talk to anyone who asks <laughs> It's going to be interesting, and I mentioned I need to see the polling data on this, but it is still such a big issue in northern Nevada because of the $750 million in public money. Even though it's coming from Clark County, they still see that as money that could have gone uh, somewhere else. And Sisolak, uh, uh, you know, past gubernatorial candidates have actually from the south have moved up. Uh, to, no to northern Nevada. Did he talk at all about northern Nevada uh, when he talked to him? Yeah, he did. Uh, he said he, if elected, he would split his time evenly, um, but remain there during the legislative session. Uh, in terms of the actual campaign season, he said it's, you know, not lost on him that he is somewhat of an unknown up in northern Nevada. Uh, but he thinks it's just a matter of getting to know people. He said the same issues are the same at the end of the day, what people want. They want better schools for their kids, safer neighborhoods, and and a decent wage at their job. So he doesn't see that as too much of a problem, um, more just name recognition. So he said he'd be busy trying to make himself known up there. Yeah, good good luck. People are the same all over. He'll find out differently when he sees how the Northerners think of uh, those of us in the South. There's other campaign developments, too, uh, this week, uh, Megan, and uh, a couple of the federal races. Uh, Dean Heller now has an opponent, at least semi-announced opponent, semi, correct? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, this week, um, first of all, it was sort of, you know, sources confirming that, you know, Jack Democratic Congresswoman Jackie Rosen, who's now been in office for about six months, um, saying that she was, you know, strongly considering running Running. Um, and then her office confirmed that as well and actually, you know, put out a, a statement saying, you know, she she is, you know, planning it. There are all these all these ways to describe it right mm -hmm. ahead of you're seriously considering you're mm -hmm. planning to run. You know, it's you're your all but in. Um, so Jackie Rosen now is a uh, is going to be one of well, at least one of Dean Heller's opponents, um, which is interesting, right, because she, you know, was a political outsider when she ran for Congressional District 3 in 2016. Like I said, she's only been in office for six months. Um, it's just hard as a freshman congresswoman to be able to get, you know, very much done. You're just very low on the food chain. Um, so at the same time, you know, she she may not have a ton of accomplishments to be able to point to, whereas someone with a long record could say, I did X, Y, Z in Carson City, then I went to Congress and I did all of this. Um, but at the same time, it makes it harder to attack her harder to attack as well, because she doesn't have this long, you know, political history to go through. Yeah, I think you just articulated exactly why they, they, they wanted her to run. Right. And as soon as Jackie Rosen uh, made it clear that she was running and we posted our story uh, about that, suddenly someone is getting into her uh, old district race, right? Yes. Yeah, right after that happened, um, one of our Republican state senators, Scott Hammond, who is a big proponent of education savings accounts, um, said that he is planning to run for her Congressional District 3 seat. Um, there had been a lot of talk and speculation. Um, there had been some talk that he was going to run in Congressional District 4. Um, but he's now said, you know, that same, I am, I'm planning to run in Congressional mm -hmm. District 3. Um, and I sat down with him earlier this week and talked to him a little bit about, you know, some of his plans and priorities. You know, he's passionate about education and, you know, adoption, social services and you know, he, he wants to bring that to Washington. And he, he is, in case people don't know, the father of the whole concept of ESAs in, right. the, in the legislature. And I think he's, he's on the is on the board uh, and uh, of a charter school, teaches at a charter school. Yeah, is that right? Yeah, he's a charter school administrator. That's yep. what I thought. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, there's a couple of uh, local issues I want to talk about uh, b before we leave. Uh, uh, Jackie, you covered one of the most emotional and long-term local issues, uh, <laughs> this issue of short-term rentals, which are banned in some jurisdictions, uh, but not in the city of Las Vegas. 
Vegas, correct? Correct. Uh, Henderson, North Las Vegas, and unincorporated parts of Clark County, it's not allowed. That doesn't mean it's not happening, but legally it's not allowed. So what's the big deal? So, you know, there's two sides to this tale. Um, There's the short-term homeowners or the owners of the short-term rentals who say this is a great way to earn a few dollars and also uh, help boost the tourism industry here by letting various, you know, business folks or families with children have a place to stay that's not on the Strip or on Fremont. Um, On the flip side of that, you have the neighbors who say that's all fine and well, but a lot of these turn into party houses and we're left with loud music and trash in their wake. Uh, So it's been this long divisive issue, especially in Ward 1, which which is where uh, Councilwoman Lois Tarkanian represents her district. So she's been working on this issue for 10 years now. Uh, had various iterations of the bill, hasn't worked. Uh, so finally, she got a step in the right direction for herself uh, when the council voted to approve these greater restrictions. It sounds like she was pretty emotional about it, too. She said she hadn't slept for yeah. three nights, something yeah, like that. Yeah, she said she hadn't slept in three nights. Uh, you could just hear the emotion in her voice that, you know, she really felt for these neighbors. Uh, you know, she lives in that area Uh, And she doesn't want to see the neighborhoods decay because uh, people are renting out their homes and not actually living and contributing to the sense of community in those areas. And so it was was a split vote? It was a split vote. Uh, I think I would say uh, Carolyn Goodman was the swing vote on that. Uh, Interestingly, at the beginning of the meeting or the discussion, I should say, she seemed on the fence. And she said, you know, I don't know that just adding a fee for a special use permit is really going to solve this problem. It seems like maybe we're creating a law that isn't really going to do much. Uh, The city knows that there's a good number of people who are operating short-term rentals without a business license, so what's a special permit use going to do? So she seemed a little questionable on it, uh, but then at the end, when it came to the vote, the first vote showed that she had voted against it, and she went, whoa, 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 that's not what happened. And so they re-voted, and she was for it. Um, of course, that came after uh, Councilwoman Tarkanian's speech, so she, uh, she didn't maybe just, had a soft spot. She didn't push the wrong button. We don't, we, we don't know exactly why she did that. Yeah, I don't know whether it was a technology glitch or she pushed the wrong button. It was hard to tell, but they fixed it. And so they have to get the special use permit now. They have to pay this relatively large fee. What, what, any, any other restrictions? Yeah, so in addition to the special use permit, um, there are some added restrictions. For instance, they'll have to put a placard in the window of these short-term rentals giving contact information so that if there is a problem, neighbors have someone to contact right away. Um, For bigger houses, they have to have security on hand. Uh, Those were two of the main ones. Um, And city officials also talked about enforcement, too, and so they're trying to set up a 24-hour hotline and and do stuff to make it easier to control them, essentially, because that's been the big problem. Well, let's hope that uh, uh, Councilwoman Tarkanian got some sleep uh, uh, the last couple of nights after getting that done. Uh, I want to have one other uh, local issue, and I don't want to surprise Megan too much by talking about this because we didn't bring it up, but you just wrote about this, and it's a great issue, and that's this issue of uh, that you got a hold of some documents that that, uh, Metro has, has sent and you picked up some other documents, too, in, in reaction to the federal government essentially saying that they're not handling this whole sanctuary county issue correctly. What would you find out? Right. So this has been a long-going issue, you know, back since um, President Donald Trump issued his executive order basically on sanctuary cities and sanctuary counties. And, you know, it said, basically said, you know, you know, ju- local jurisdictions, you need to be complying with federal immigration law. If not, you're going to risk losing your federal grant funding. So there have been some legal challenges to that, and that's sort of working its way through the court 
courts. Um, but amid all of that, there's been a lot more attention on, you know, which jurisdictions are complying, what are people's policies. And this is something I looked at a little bit during the legislature when there was an attempt um, from one of our lawmakers to sort of limit the ability of Metro and other law enforcement in Nevada to cooperate with federal immigration authorities. That bill got watered down to just say you can't ask for someone's immigration status at a traffic stop. And then even that bill was too much and the bill just died. Um, so a lot of those issues have been sort of at the, the forefront of a lot of discussions. Um, and at the same time, I want to say it was in April um, that the Justice Department sent a letter to 10 jurisdictions that it believed were not complying with federal immigration law or potentially weren't complying with federal immigration law. Um, and Clark County has always been one of those that's been on their radar um, because of this 2014 statement by then Sheriff Doug Gillespie, who basically said that we're not going to comply with federal immigration detainers. There were some court cases and they were concerned about the constitu constitutionality of detaining someone without probable cause. So that statement sort of led, you know, the federal government to keep its eye on Clark County and then eventually send this letter in April saying, you know, you need to provide proof to us that you are complying with this federal immigration law. Um, and it's a very specific law that basically says that you can't um, prohibit the ability of local, state, or federal law enforcement officials. Um, you can't prohibit them from communicating with federal immigration authorities. So, you know, Metro can't be saying, you know, you, you can't tell um, ICE agents, you know, what this person's immigration status is. You just can't have policies like that in place. Um, and the reason why that matters is because it's a condition of some of these really important grants that Metro receives. So they receive this the, all these federal grants that help um, with certain funds. It's about 1% of Metro's budget. Um, so it would be a significant amount of money if they, if they lost it. But these grants, as a condition, require compliance with that federal immigration law. There have been discussions about whether or not that law is coercive, whether these, you know, proposals are coercive. You know, what, what can the federal government tell state and local law enforcement that they can do? You know, are they making them do things they don't want to do? Um, so basically what happened was, you know, Justice Department said, you know, Clark County, you need to prove to us that you are complying with this certain federal immigration law. So um, it was at the end of May that Clark County and uh, Las Vegas Metro Police Department responded and said, you know, here are all of our procedures. Here's all of our documentation. Um, Metro actually participates in this program called 287G, which allows some of Metro officers to carry out certain immigration functions. Um, and so they were saying, hey, we actually actively go out of our way to participate, you know, in, in certain aspects of immigration enforcement. So how can you say that we're out of compliance with this law when we're going out of our way to communicate and sort of spell that out very much in black and white, um, which is important because Metro, you know, doesn't want to lose its funding. And so it wants to communicate to the federal government that, hey, you know, we're doing what you've asked us to do. And you you posted a lot of these documents on our site, correct? Yep. People can go on the Nevada Yeah, they're all online. Uh, it's like 80 or 90 pages of documents. People, <laughs> yeah, well, people are interested in this. So, so I hope they will go look. All right. We're almost out of time. I, I want to do what we always try to do at the end uh, for our loyal podcast listeners and give them a glimpse into what... Uh, might be coming on the site in, in, in a few days or weeks. Jackie, what are you working on that people might be interested in? We're getting a story about a program that helps fast-track candidates who, wants to be, who want to become teachers. So it, it gets them that field experience over a course of four weeks in the summer, which leads to a conditional license and then being in the classroom in August. That sounds great. Megan, what about you? What are you working on? So back on that immigration issue, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, there was this uh, brief that our Attorney General Adam Laxalt um, filed last Friday um, with a bunch of other attorneys general across the United States um, in one of these court cases challenging the executive order on sanctuary cities. Um, basically, he was on the other side of it saying, you know, um, this executive order is okay. Um, a, a judge should put an injunction on the executive order. And so basically, Laxalt and all these other attorneys general are saying, you know, we, we, th we think that you 
should dismiss the injunction. And so they've joined in support of the federal government's motion to dismiss that injunction. Um, so we'll have some more information on sort of the whole sanctuary city issue, the background on the executive order, what this brief does, um, sort of what Nevada's policies are, how that compares to other policies, um, and this issue that Attorney General Adam Laxalt brought up um, uh, saying basically that Nevada was in danger because of California sanctuary cities. So we're going to look at that issue as well. That's a great deep dive as well. I hope people go and read all our stories on NevadaIndependent.com. Uh, that is all the time that we have for, for this week's edition of the Indie Matters podcast. We want to know what you think, though. If you have ideas, criticism, or even praise, email us at ideas at thenvindy.com. Please check out our site. As I say to everybody every day, the Nevada Independent.com, and rate us on iTunes, and please subscribe to this podcast. You can also find us on Google Play and all kinds of other platforms. I want to thank Jackie and Megan for being here this week on the podcast. I want to thank our fantastic hosts here at KUNV uh, in, in the Greenspun building. I love seeing the Greenspun building. I don't, I don't know why, you guys. Uh, both of these, the, all three of us used to work for someone named Greenspun. Uh, and and uh, they've just been great here in, in helping us out and hosting us. And as always, our fantastic producer up north, Joey Lovato, is going to put this together and make us sound as wonderful as we are sounding to you right now. Thanks for listening to Indie Matters. We'll talk to you next week.